Good morning, everybody. My name is Joel. My pronouns are he and him. Hello to you folks out there in Zoom land and all of you uh, other folks watching or listening or podcasting or whatever on YouTube or the church website. It is good to have you all part of our church gathering this morning, wherever and whenever you might be coming from. Nobody wants to be swallowed by a whale. It's kind of a gross story, hey? I saw some of you sharing my delight at one of my favorite Bible verses. Then God spoke to the fish, and the fish vomited Jonah onto the shore. You know the story, right? This is Jonah the bad prophet, the one who was called by God to go and minister to his enemies, the people of Nineveh. And instead of following God's instructions, Jonah runs in the opposite direction, takes a ship towards the other end of the earth, literally, at that time. And God follows Jonah. God brings a storm onto this ship. And the, you know the story, the, the waves are, are overwhelming. The ship is about to go under and the people start throwing off uh, whatever weight they can. And Jonah says, okay, fine, I admit it. This is my fault. God is angry at me. Throw me over, overboard instead. Uh, the one noble thing Jonah does in the whole story, really. And they toss him overboard. The storm ceases Jonah sinks to the bottom of the ocean where he is saved by God by being swallowed by a whale slash big fish. Um, we can get into that controversy some other time. Um, three days there in the belly of the big fish, the fish does follow God's directions, to, takes Jonah to the shores of Nineveh, or at least in that general direction, vomits Jonah up onto the shore. Jonah finally goes and does what God had asked him to do, preaching to the people of Nineveh, his enemies. Surprise, surprise, they actually listen to him. They repent from, turn from their wicked ways. We're not entirely sure what those wicked ways are, but that's irrelevant to the story. They listen to God, and so God doesn't destroy them. And Jonah is so mad at this, he goes out and sits on the, on the mountaintop to look down and says, okay, surely God has to, has to destroy them. That was the message I was supposed to bring, that God was going to destroy them. But God doesn't. God gives grace to Jonah's enemies, and that makes him very angry. Um, and then God toys with him a little bit more and makes a, it's very hot on the mountain, and God makes a plant grow up to give him some shade. That gives Jonah some delight for about half a day, and then the plant dies, and then Jonah's even more upset, and the story ends. Um, it's one of my favorite stories to uh, look up in children's Bibles and whenever I'm just browsing in a Christian bookstore as one tends to do. I like to look at the latest editions of children's Bibles and, and I go to the story of Jonah because what, what do you do with this? It's an exciting story, but the moral of the story is definitely beyond your typical early childhood development. Sometimes they tell this as a story, as a parable about obedience. If you do the right things, if you do what God asks you to do, then things will go well for you. If not, well, storms and big fish and vomit. That's kind of true to the story, I guess, but um, without the happy ending. Again, Joseph or Jonah is actually kind of miserable the entire time, and that never resolves in the story. Other times, this is presented as a story about God's patience and forgiveness, and it is that as well. Look at this silly prophet. He tried to run away from God, but you can't run away from God. God is always with you. God rescued Jonah. God brought Jonah along in spite of his bad attitude. True story as well. God does show kindness to Jonah, 
But you have to admit that it's kind of a Stockholm Syndrome kind of kindness, almost abusive, manipulative for sure. The storytellers describe this manipulation and it's presented as this is for Jonah's own good, but I don't think Jonah experienced it that way. I would say that the actual message of the story in its ancient context, by my understanding, is mostly about fatalism. Life just happened to Jonah. God just kind of happened to Jonah, whether he played along or not. When Jonah was disobedient, some bad things happened, some good things happened. When Jonah was obedient, some bad things happened, some good things happened, from Jonah's perspective at least. Likewise, when things went well, Jonah was sometimes happy, sometimes miserable. When things went poorly, Jonah was sometimes happy, sometimes miserable. The peak of the story, the place where Jonah is most clear and content, is in the belly of the beast. God is present throughout the story, beginning, middle, and end. But God's presence, God's action, doesn't actually resolve much of anything, not for Jonah. Endings and conclusions are overrated. That's the moral of the story. And the place where Jonah is most aware of God's presence is at the bottom, all the way down. This is week six. Can I have control of my clicker, perhaps? There we go. Did I do that? Yeah, I'm doing that. All right. The path of descent is the path of transformation. Darkness, failure, relapse, death, and woundedness are primary teachers rather than ideas or doctrines. This is week six of our study of an alternative orthodoxy. I warned you last week, if you were here, that this was a heavy topic. And I'll tell you again now that we are going to hear some intense stories of violence and mental illness. Nothing graphic, stories that are hard to listen to. So please, as we're wrestling with darkness and the belly of the beast, take care of yourself. If you need to step away for a while, if you need to tune out, please feel free to do so. Actually, one of the things that I like about this tenet is It takes the pressure off of what we're doing this morning. I mean, ideas and doctrines, that's kind of my only game from up here. This tenet says right away that you're probably not going to learn what you need to learn about this piece. You're not going to learn that from me, certainly not on a single Sunday morning. One of my mantras in this season of life is, you can't think your way into a new way of living, but you can live your way into a new way of thinking. That's where we're at this morning. I can't preach this into you or otherwise convince you. That's another thing about the Jonah story. From the storm to the big fish to the equally miraculous transformation of his enemies, Jonah doesn't learn a darn thing. God speaks clear as day. Even that is not enough to change Jonah's mind about anything. So words are not enough. I actually don't have a lot to say this morning myself and I don't have any storms or cavernous fish up my sleeves either. Instead, I want to share some wisdom and stories from others who have walked this path more deeply than I have. We'll listen to some audio clips from a couple of different books and a podcast. And I know that listening to disembodied voices is not an ideal format. Um, After last week, I feel compelled to reassure you that I'm not just being lazy by playing someone else's work here. In a perfect world, I might have shared more directly from my own limited experiences of the path of descent. But honestly, that takes a lot of time and a place of emotional fortitude that I just did not have this week. 
So instead, I, I did work very hard um, pulling these audio clips together. Um, these are meaningful to me. I hope that you will receive them in that spirit as well. I also want to name the reality that some of us are presently underwater this morning, coping with physical illness, mental health struggles, family struggles, difficult relationships, the weight of grief and loss, anxiety, all the rest. Some of us are overwhelmed by life right now. If that's you, know that we see you, know that you are not alone. And know that none of what we're talking about this morning is meant to tell you to cheer up or get over it or look for the silver linings in your pain. Pain is painful. I'm not trying to talk anyone out of that. And I think that all three of our guests this morning will talk about how the meaning that they found in their struggles didn't come until years later. So if you're struggling today, maybe this, maybe this whole message isn't for you right now. If that's the way it is, that's okay. Just know that we do care. That's enough disclaimers. First, we'll listen to a bit of Richard Rohr and Friends from the Another Name for Everything podcast series uh, that, this, that this series uh, on alternative orthodoxy is drawn from. So in this episode, they are reading and responding to listener questions. So Richard, we're going to uh, spend some time this episode talking about the path of great suffering. So to kick us off, uh, Carrie from Baltimore, Maryland says, as a person with a serious diagnosis, I valued what you said about dealing with your own health problems. It is scary and painful when a person's body does things they don't want it to do. My diagnosis is not life-threatening, but it's still very sad for me. I cannot let myself devolve into, well, this is God's will for me, or even there's a lesson in this and I will learn to embrace it. That makes me cringe. I can't embrace this, but I would like to feel more at peace with my fears and frustration. I hope you hear my grief and sadness in this and not an ego that is wounded. That's the other thing to set aside as I deal with this, the desire to control. Can you speak to how we can accept suffering without it becoming the trite response that it is God's will? It seems that the, the, the central suffering of suffering is the absurdity of it, that there isn't an obvious lesson. <laughs> the nonsensical, there's no goal visible or obvious that you can find. And we're also Oh, if I had this purpose, I could achieve it. So she's so right. We try to put a spiritual purpose on it. I don't know to what degree God is involved in, in it, but we have to say God certainly is allowing suffering, negativity, death. Why does God allow it? It seems that it's the the necessary pushback in the whole movement forward of, of personal evolution and historical revolution. There has to be loss. There has to be absurdity. There has to be tragedy. I mean, is there, is there a single novel that we take seriously that is not about tragedy in some way? And it's our dealing with that by which people come to depth, to wisdom, and to love. Now, does God maneuver that whole affair? I don't know. 
I know many people afterwards say it feels like it. Like I say that now after the several brushes with death I've gone through, I look back and I say, oh, you allowed it to come at just the right time or uh, it wounded me just enough without destroying me so I can enjoy the grace of it, but it's always after the fact. When you're in the middle of it, it just feels like hell, yeah. inconvenience. Uh, why me? You get into the self-pity thing real easily. The existence of suffering in this world is very clearly saying God is not in control. And um, the fact that we projected that God always was almighty has done us a real disservice. And that's why for me, the cross is the symbol of God not being an almighty God, but an all suffering God. Uh, it doesn't resolve it again, but it softens it. If God is participating with us in solidarity in the suffering, somehow I can bear it. My grasp around it is softened. Yeah. Um, she is about my age. She was just going into her third year at the university or at Stanford University uh, when the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center towers happened. I remember well the grief and confusion of those days. I imagine most of you do as well from a northern perspective. As an American Sikh, Cowers, or, sorry, her name is pronounced Kaur and looks like Cower. Kaur's grief and confusion was intensified when her people became targets for revenge attacks. So she suspended her studies that fall to travel across the US um, along with her cousin Sonny to interview uh, families and, and uh, victims of hate crimes, the survivors, the communities of those who didn't survive. And she describes that journey into the path of descent in this book, See No Stranger. It was early September and I was home. My father woke me up and pulled me to the television, a ball of fire burgeoning into a blue sky. We watched as a second plane exploded into the South Tower of the World Trade Center and people jumped from high stories disappearing into the bottom of the screen. We did not see the impact. We only felt the weightlessness of the fall. That's what it was like for all of us who were watching helplessly from afar. We were not inside our bodies. We were inside screens, watching the Twin Towers collapse over and over again on an endless loop until the face of the person responsible appeared on every screen, every channel, and in every newspaper. Osama bin Laden of the terrorist network Al-Qaeda. His face, brown skin, black beard, round turban. Our nation's new enemy looked like my family. The violence was instant. On city streets across the nation, Muslim, Sikh, Hindu, Arab, and South Asian Americans were beaten, chased, shot, and stabbed. And our homes and houses of worship were set ablaze in thousands of acts of hate across the country in the wake of September 11, 2001. It was hard for me to feel anything at all, 
I was suspended in that sense of weightlessness that never went away, the fall before the impact. It went on like this for months. The beatings, shootings, and stabbings were mostly reported as isolated incidents in the local news. But the FBI would report a 1,600% increase in anti-Muslim hate crimes in the year that followed 9-11, a number that reflects only a fraction of the violence that actually occurred because so many incidents were not reported or classified as hate crimes at all. At first, I tried to play the part of oral historian, sitting behind the camera, holding a clipboard of carefully crafted questions. Sunny tried to play the part of cameraman, focused on lighting and sound. But for all our displays of professionalism, we were still just two kids showing up at the front doors of people we called auntie and uncle, because that's how we addressed our elders. They would call us beta, my child, because that's how young people are addressed and let us into their homes and serve us jaw and tell us what happened. Since we would arrive soon after the violence had happened, sometimes when the blood was still fresh on the ground, invariably at some point we would reach the limits of language, and they would begin to cry, and we would begin to cry with them. I didn't understand it then, but recording the stories was secondary to our real work, grieving together. Grief is the price of love. Loving someone means that one day there will be grieving. They will leave you, or you will leave them. The more you love, the more you grieve. Loving someone also means grieving with them. It means letting their pain and loss bleed into your own heart. When you see that pain coming, you may want to throw up the guardrails, sound the alarm, raise the flag. But you must keep the borders of your heart porous in order to love well. Grieving is an act of surrender. The wisdom across faith traditions is that grieving is done in community. Grieving together, bearing the unbearable, is an act of transformation. It brings survivors into the healing process, creates new relationships, and energizes the demand for justice. We come to know people when we grieve with them through stories and rituals. It is how we build real solidarity, the kind that shows us the world we want to live in and our role in fighting for it. You may say, it's too much. All this grief, all this violence and injustice, it's too hard. You are right. The mind can comprehend one death, but it cannot comprehend thousands, especially when one's own community, nation, or ancestors played some part in causing the death. Mother Teresa once said, If I look at the mass, I will never act. If I look at the one, I will. And so, begin with one. Can you choose one person to practice wondering about? Can you listen to the story they have to tell? If your fists tighten, or your heart beats fast, or if shame rises to your face, it's okay. Breathe through it. Trust that you can. The heart is a muscle.
The more you use it, the stronger it becomes. Then the next time a black boy in your city is killed by a police officer, or a turban-sick father is beaten, or a Jewish person is stabbed, or a trans woman is murdered, or an indigenous woman goes missing, or a Muslim child is attacked, show up. Show up at the public vigils and memorials to grieve, in person if you can. You don't need to know people in order to grieve with them. You grieve with them in order to know them. I had to cut out way more than I wanted to for the sake of time. This book feels like the kind of thing that our world needs right now. You can't borrow my copy because I'm not done with it yet, but you can get your own. The documentary that Valerie created from her interviews is called Divided We Fall, Americans in the Aftermath, and you can watch that for free on her website, ValerieCore.com. And I do highly recommend the rest of the book, See No Strangers. Uh, Valerie, Valerie embodies this, the wisdom of the path of descent. Um, we Glade mentioned that maybe we're supposed to feel sad this morning. Um, and sadness is certainly part of the, the path of descent, but I love how Valerie makes space for rage and um, numbness and pain and suffering alongside the hope and the joy. There's path, there's room for all of it on the way down. Revolutionary indeed. One more voice for today, from a very big book to a very small book. Parker Palmer is another writer and teacher of a different generation. He's one of those high-achieving people with lots of uh, accomplishments and awards, PhD. He's a teacher of teachers. He's the founder of educational institutions. Um, by every measure that we have, he's a, a success, success story, a successful person. But his greatest wisdom, in my opinion, comes in this tiny book called Let Your Life Speak, in a small chapter in a small book called All the Way Down. We're going to listen to a bit of the audiobook now. Um, it's not read by, uh, by Parker Palmer, but by Stefan Rudnicki. Um, just a heads up, this piece contains, um, again, a frank but not graphic discussion of Palmer's struggle with depression and suicidal ideation. It's heavy stuff, but it's not without hope. Let's Midway in my life's journey, way closed again, this time with a ferocity that felt fatal. I found myself in the dark woods called clinical depression, a total eclipse of light and hope. But after I emerged from my sojourn in the dark and had given myself several years to absorb its meaning, I saw how pivotal that passage had been on my pilgrimage toward selfhood and vocation, though I recommend it to no one. And I do not need to, for it arrives unbidden in too many lives. Depression compelled me to find the river of life hidden beneath the ice. Twice in my forties I spend endless months in the snake pit of the soul. Hour by hour, day by day, I wrestled with the desire to die, sometimes so feeble in my resistance that I practiced ways of doing myself in. I could feel nothing except the burden of my own life and the exhaustion, the apparent futility of trying to sustain it. I understand why some depressed people kill themselves. They need the rest. But I do not understand why others are able to find new life in the midst of a living death, though I am one of them. I can tell you what I did to survive and eventually to thrive.
but I cannot tell you why I was able to do those things before it was too late. Because of my not knowing, perhaps I have learned something about the relation of depression to faith. Depression demands that we reject simplistic answers, both religious and scientific, and learn to embrace mystery, something our culture resists. Mystery surrounds every deep experience of the human heart. The deeper we go into the heart's darkness or its light, the closer we get to the ultimate mystery of God. Embracing the mystery of depression does not mean passivity or resignation. It means moving into a field of forces that seems alien but is in fact one's deepest self. It means waiting, watching, listening, suffering, and gathering whatever self-knowledge one can, and then making choices based on that knowledge, no matter how difficult. One begins the slow walk back to health by choosing each day things that enliven one's selfhood and resisting things that do not. I had to walk that path a second time because what I learned about myself the first time frightened me. I rejected my own knowing and refused to make the choices it required, and the price was a second sojourn in hell. It is odd that some of my most vivid memories of depression involve the people who came to look in on me, since in the middle of the experience I was barely able to notice who was or was not there. Depression is the ultimate state of disconnection. It deprives one of the relatedness that is the lifeline of every living being. One of the hardest things we must do sometimes is to be present to another person's pain without trying to fix it, to simply stand respectfully at the edge of that person's mystery and misery. Standing there, we feel useless and powerless, which is exactly how a depressed person feels, and our unconscious need as Job's comforters is to reassure ourselves that we are not like the sad soul before us. Blessedly, there were several people, family and friends, who had the courage to stand with me in a simple and healing way. One of them was a friend named Bill, who, having asked my permission to do so, stopped by my home every afternoon, sat me down in a chair, knelt in front of me, removed my shoes and socks, and for half an hour simply massaged my feet. He found the one place in my body where I could still experience feeling and feel somewhat reconnected with the human race. Bill rarely spoke a word. When he did, he never gave advice, but simply mirrored my condition. He would say, I can sense your struggle today, or it feels like you are getting stronger. I could not always respond, but his words were deeply helpful. They reassured me that I could still be seen by someone, life-giving knowledge in the midst of an experience that makes one feel annihilated and invisible. It is impossible to put into words what my friend's ministry meant to me. Perhaps it is enough to say that I now have deep appreciation for the biblical stories of Jesus and the washing of feet. Acknowledging my need for professional help was not easy. I had abortive meetings with two psychiatrists whose dismissive attitude toward the inner life would have made me angry enough to get well simply to spite them had I not been terminally depressed. But finally, blessedly, I found a counselor who understood what was happening to me as I needed to understand it, as a spiritual journey. After hours of careful listening, my therapist offered an image that helped me eventually reclaim my life. You seem to look upon depression as the hand of an enemy trying to crush you, he said. 
Do you think you could see it instead as the hand of a friend, pressing you down to ground on which it is safe to stand? Amid the assaults I was suffering, the suggestion that depression was my friend seemed impossibly romantic, even insulting. But something in me knew that down, down to the ground, was the direction of wholeness, thus allowing that image to begin its slow work of healing in me. I started to understand that I had been living an ungrounded life, living at an altitude that was inherently unsafe. The problem with living at high altitude is simple. When we slip, as we always do, we have a long, long way to fall, and the landing may well kill us. The grace of being pressed down to the ground is also simple. When we slip and fall, it is usually not fatal, and we can get back up. Depression was indeed the hand of a friend trying to press me down to ground on which it was safe to stand, the ground of my own truth, my own nature, with its complex mix of limits and gifts, liabilities and assets, darkness and light. No one wants to be swallowed by a whale. Not many people choose the way of pain and loss and descent. But it will come, and we do not need to fear it. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. When we cling to our preferred existence, our comfort, if I hold too tightly to my ideas about what is good for me, I'm going to get lost. But if I'm willing to let go, to give up controlling my life, my knowing, my plan, if I surrender my life, then I can find true life beneath the life of the ages. The undoing is part of the remaking, as Rohr puts it. Again, I can't teach you that. You'll have to discover it in your own way when the time comes. I can promise that you are not alone on the journey. There is meaning and purpose and belonging still. Parker Palmer once more. At one fork in the long road back to wholeness, when I was in fact walking along a country road past a freshly plowed field, I found a poem taking form within me. I offer it, along with my unknowing, as a token of hope to anyone who may be enduring the harrowing of depression. Harrowing. The plow has savaged this sweet field. Misshapen clods of earth kicked up. Rocks and twisted roots exposed to view. Last year's growth demolished by the blade. I have plowed my life this way, turned over a whole history, looking for the roots of what went wrong, until my face is ravaged, furrowed, scarred. Enough. The job is done. Whatever's been uprooted, let it be seedbed for the growing that's to come. I plowed to unearth last year's reasons. The farmer plows to plant a greening season. <laughs> 